Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Gary Brewer, Frederick K. Weyerhaeuser Professor of Resource Policy and Management at the Yale School of Management and Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, delivering a speech entitled Business and Environment, Trends and Challenges. The speech took place at the Universidad de Sao Paulo on June 1st, 2007, as part of the inaugural Yale Week in Brazil. Environmental problems are different. And it's easy enough to say this, but it's also important that we understand why environmental problems are different and what the differences present to people in business by way of new challenges that they're not used to. You can't simply conduct business as usual when the topic is very heavily oriented or dependent upon the environment. So I'll spend some time going over very quickly lessons I've learned over a long period of time, many of them from my friends in ecology, many of my environmental friends, of why the things that are environmental are both more challenging more demanding of a manager's or a business person's thoughts and attention, and some other things that always seem to happen uh, when you are dealing with something like climate change, which is grand, or something like the pollution in your factory, which is less grand. There are a lot of things that are similar. My next argument is that the usual MBA, and I don't know my audience here, but I presume some of you are in the track to, to do MBAs or interested in MBAs or you wouldn't be here given the top the topic. My argument here in the second part of the presentation is that the usual MBA is not adequate in terms of preparing people to be business in business or in management and to deal with the environment. There's just much more that's needed. I also make the, the, the point uh, that people who are attracted to environmental organizations to be leaders of environmental organizations like Conservation International, World Wildlife Fund, hundreds of them, uh, are also not adequately prepared, but in a different way. And that is, they don't have the management skills that their MBA counterparts have in abundance. And that what I see is the need for a blending and a convergence among the leadership of businesses and the leadership of environment and conservation organizations in countries, regionally, and around the world. So that's a, that's a lot to think about. That's the second part. I make the, the next part of the presentation is that you can look around and see evidence of businesses, not all businesses, not every business, trying to cope with the environment as both an opportunity and a nuisance or a challenge to the regular business practices. And as they do so, and this is a relatively recent thing, maybe dating to 1990 or thereabouts, there's a funny kind of nothing happened before and around 1990 you begin to see a few leaders in business saying, this environment stuff we gotta pay attention to. And that's now becoming much more developed you find many businesses realizing the environment's not going away. It's there. They have to deal with it. And you can see, even in the standard business disciplines, and I'll go through some of them, the, the, the adaptation to the environmental facts of life and the evolution of these disciplines in business practice. 
it's evolving. It's, we're not there. There's a lot of work to be done. Corporate social responsibility is a catch-all. It gets to some very deep issues. What's the business of a business? Well, to be socially responsible in the classic form of thinking about business, it's to make money. And, yet, and now, because of the environment, and it's often packaged in the area of corporate social responsibility, it's not only make money, but we're asking businesses to do two other things, the so-called triple bottom line. Make money, be responsible to the environment, be responsible to human beings where you are doing business, including your workers, your customers, the people who live in the areas where you're do doing your work. The triple bottom line is really the bedrock in terms of understanding what is corporate social responsibility in a world where the environment is, is important. So we'll talk about that a bit. Not a lot, but a bit. Climate change. It's the, the scare word of the, of the week. Climate is changing. Human beings are involved. Uh, there are lots of ways of thinking about this. From a business point of view, it's an opportunity for a lot of businesses to evolve, to adapt, to bring new technology online, to operate smarter, more efficiently, to be conserving of resources and so forth. So climate change, while it's an inconvenient truth, as our former vice president has so famously said, uh, is perhaps an opportunity rather than something to be scared about. Certainly there are frightening aspects to it, but there are plenty of things that we have to do to evolve, to adapt and evolve. And businesses are already showing that they can do that. And then finally, bridging the gap, I want to spend a few minutes talking about a program that I have been deeply involved in uh, for 25 years. The combining of business training with environmental training so that people can get both. And it gets back to my previous comment, the need to bring closer together leaders in business with those who are leaders in the environment. And there's some very interesting things going on, not only in, in North America, but here, in Latin America. And I'm, I'm working very hard on certain things, and I'd like to share that with you. Okay, so there is the basic outline. What makes environmental problems so hard? I'm going to leave this up for a while, and I want to run through very quickly what makes, what makes them really different and, and difficult to deal with. Natural systems are, by their very nature, highly uncertain. And the more complex the system, the more uncertain. And this is not like uncertainty that business people are used to, where you can sort of buy the insurance or you can hedge your bet on the, on the downside. We're talking about systems that are so complex, nobody even knows what we don't know about many of them. Let me let that sink in. If you're dealing with climate change, let me tell you, there's an awful lot we still don't and probably never will know about what makes it go. That's not an excuse to do nothing, because doing nothing with respect to climate change is a decision, and it's one with consequences. Now, understanding what to do is a, because of climate change is a very different proposition, but if you're paralyzed and you say it's so complex, there's so much risk and uncertainty, we don't know what to do, you kind of miss the point entirely. A fish system, a fishery of some sort or another, fish in the sea like codfish, 
for example. That too is an environmental and ecological system of enormous complexity and great uncertainty. Think about George's Bank, the, the, the oldest and most bountiful fish system in the world. And what happens, happened as it comes around the world. The systems get, they're resilient. The fish keep coming, it's sustainable. And then at some point, you take that last fish one too many and the system crashes. You've passed an environmental threshold because the system can't take it anymore. That's a form of uncertainty. And the thing is, we don't know when that, that, that next to the last fish or the, the one that's one too many, we don't know where that is and we probably never will. Another thing about environmental systems is, and this is easy, science is essential. And uh, the question is, what's the problem? If it's an ecological problem, then you've got to go talk to people who know about ecology. If it's a fisheries problem, you talk to people who know about fish. If it's a water resources problem, then there's a different collection of scientists that you have to talk to. The problem for many business people is that they are not able to even know that they need to talk to the scientist. Which ones? Which disciplines? What language are they speaking to me as a business person? I'm playing the role here. There is a lot of education that has to go on before, and it takes time. And business people typically don't spend a lot of time on anything. They move very quickly. The timing issue becomes important in a moment. You never have enough information about ecosystems. Never. And so you have to make decisions just on what you know and make decisions that will be adaptable. And it's interesting. There's a whole collection of thought in the environmental community known as adaptive management, which says, these systems are so complicated, we'll never know. Let's try what seems to be sensible based on what we know. And if it works, we'll do more. If it fails, we'll do less. And we will constantly monitor the system to see how things are going. And we will adjust through time in a dynamic way. Well, this is a very different model from the one that we teach business people in the MBA program, where you find the right answer, you go through the case, you develop the analysis, you find the right answer, you execute with Jack Welch certainty, and everything turns out splendidly. You become Jack Welch or Donald Trump or whatever. <laughs> the natural world doesn't work that way. There's never enough information. Academic disciplines, including the scientific disciplines, are so specialized and fragmented, it's often hard to know which one you want to talk to if you're serious about this business. Who do you talk to? And there is a burden on the scientific side, and you see this to a large extent in climate change. One of the sub-stories, the subtext in climate change, is all of these thousands of scientists kind of interacting in the intergovernmental panel on climate change. All these disciplines that are involved, and for many it's the first time they've talked to each other about climate change. Much less talking to decision makers, much less having a coherent message for the public. Now, is this, is this a criticism? No, because there are many scientists who now see they have a public responsibility to get the message across. And that is very uncommon in the science community, because many scientists look at this as wasting your time. You're supposed to be just doing your science. 
the standard or equivalent problem for the business person is, why am I messing with this science? I just got to make some money. And both of those positions I find to be hard, hard, to, uh, hard to believe and hard to live with. All right, money and power, talking about money. People who we teach finance in our management schools, finance one. The first thing that we teach you is the discount rate. And that gives you the present value of money. And the present value of money is always a lot more than the future value of money or anything else. And depending upon the discount rate that you assign to the analysis of whether to invest or not in one thing or another, you realize a consequence. You're not thinking about the future very much at all. So you have timing problems between the way business people are trained to think about money and economics and the way environmental problems themselves are scaled in terms of time. And many environmental problems are decades, hundreds, thousands of years long. When we're talking about climate change, the relevant frame is thousands of years in terms of natural variations in the climate. Thousands. There's, what is the discount rate if your investment horizon is 100 years? What discount rate do you apply? It's something very close to zero. Or else, by the time 100 years rolls around, the money is worth nothing anyway, uh, I mean, at that point, to make the point. Time scales are very important in the environmental realm. Space is very important. And to a business person, space is not often very important. We talk about ecosystems on the environmental side and the effects that happen within an ecosystem. That's a natural way of describing the world. Now, where is the equivalent when you talk about General Electric or when you talk about General Motors or any other big business? There is no equivalent because the businesses themselves are not tuned in the same way to the natural environment. Ecosystems being the base for studying most environmental problems and all the stuff that then goes on. Uh, I'm studying in great depth and with a lot of, of, of enthusiasm the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Just to make the point for you here very quickly. That's Yellowstone National Park, our oldest and most important symbolic park. And when you say the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, you realize it's more than the park. It involves multiple authorities, lots of private, lots of public, lots of nonprofit organizations who don't have the ecosystem as their boundary. But they're all operating and doing things there. And that typically is what happens with environmental problems. You have a power plant in Ohio burning coal but making electricity for the region. The effects of that power plant are felt in the in the downwind in the ecosystems. Let me move on because I've got a lot to talk about today. <laughs> the way we think about making decisions and calculating cost and benefits are very interesting. There is a political cost-benefit calculation that goes as follows. Politician says, I need benefits for my constituents now and I want someone else to pay for that benefit in the future. This is very cynical, but it's also very true. The environmental cost-benefit calculation, when you're dealing with environmental problems, is very different. It goes as follows. We will spend now to provide benefits in the future. We know who has to pay now 
find people who have to pay for benefits that they may never see, like in future generations, unborn. Now let me tell you, from a political or an economic point of view, that calculation is very hard to make. It's so important, let me say it again. The environmental calculation in terms of cost and benefits is we have to spend money now to prevent climate change. We have to spend money now to prevent X, Y, or Z. For whose benefit? Well, maybe nothing's going to happen for 50 or 100 years down the road. The climate change conversation is one that's hundreds of years down the road, if you stop and think about how complicated that's the climate system really is. And that makes it a very hard sell. All right, keep that in mind as we, as we keep going on. I've talked about institutions. I've talked about ecology. Let me try to summarize some of this for us. First thing, everything is connected. That's the primary rule of ecology. Everything is connected to everything. And in business, these, these connections are not nearly as, as seriously understood or taken. There is a difference between outcomes and effects. Uh, the idea of an outcome is the immediate thing that happens after you make a decision. An effect is something that happens somewhere else in space and time, maybe down the road. So an immediate outcome of using DDT, let me back up, I'm changing subjects here fast. DDT kills mosquitoes. The use of DDT kills mosquitoes and then gets rid of or reduces malaria. That, those are outcomes. An effect from an environmental point of view is accumulation, a bioaccumulation in birds, in water, in soils because of the DDT and then other terrible things happening. And then the final toughest part when talking about environmental problems is cumulative effects. All these things piling up one on the other and producing surprises. By the way, the word surprise is in the ecologist vocabulary, and that's exactly what they're talking about. When things keep piling up and then something we never expected happens, okay? Uh, what's important? Where do we draw the lines? Who should be involved? That's part of the connecting issue. Uncertainty, outcomes, effects, cumulative effects. I've already gone over that just a bit. How hard can you push the system? My comment about fisheries. My comment about water resources. How hard comment about trees and forest systems? How far can human beings push a system before the system is transformed and usually not for the better? This is an issue. Surprises and threshold, I've talked about. Boundaries, everything's got to go somewhere. So the guys who burn coal in that power plant in Ohio they think about what happens in the neighborhood, but in fact they should be thinking about what happens in New York and what happens going up my nose in Connecticut. Where do you draw the boundary? All right? What are the limits? Local, regional, global. One of the things we find when dealing with climate change, there is no global authority to enforce rules about climate change. We haven't invented it yet, so we're, we're, we have real problems. All right. The usual MBA, I'm shifting gears here. Usual MBA in, the, in North America and most places in the world, two years. The first year, core subjects are taught. The core subjects are primarily variations on economic theory. 
It is accounting, it is finance, it is basic applied economics, it is marketing with a heavy economic basis to it, corporate strategy, these are the standard courses in the core MBA. You have a summer, typically, our summer, where you go and you intern in a bank or with an investment firm or a consulting firm and you see applications of what you've learned in your first year of the MBA. You come back in the second year and what do you do? Depth usually in one of the specialty fields where you want to make your living and become rich and famous. Okay? Where's the environment when you talk about when you talk about the normal MBA? Where are the environmental exposures and subject matters? By the way, most business schools in North America that I know, and I know a couple of them, are isolated. That is to say, the core courses are restricted to the MBAs. They don't let outsiders take them. So there's a reinforcement of the mindset, basically, of economics as the dominant paradigm. Uh, and that's not necessarily a good thing if you're worrying about the environment. If a business school has environment at all, it's usually a technical elective environment, health, and safety. Environment, health, and safety. And not everyone takes that course. Most people don't take that course. It's like the elective of business ethics. Most people don't take that course. They probably should, if you look at how business works. My previous comment about environmental leaders. Environmental leaders go to schools like the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies at Yale. There's a graduate right here. Raise your hand. Okay. And if I'm wrong, just be, be very silent on this point, okay? <laughs> Typically, in the best of the environment schools that are training real leaders, you find ecology is the dominant paradigm, not economics. If economics is taught, it's usually a re a one course, and students taking it are very reluctant to accept the economic point of view because they think it's economics that's screwing up the environment. You can say yes. Yeah, okay. Good, 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 good. <laughs> the other thing is that students are attracted to these environment leadership schools because they're interested in trees, they're interested in species, they're interested in water, fish, whatever. As I was saying in a, in, a, in a different lecture last night, they come there because they want to hug the tree and they want to kiss the bears. <laughs> and I, as I stated, I made this up last night, but I, I, it amused me. The first is a renewable enterprise. You can hug a lot of trees. The second is a one-time deal <laughs> to kiss the bears. <laughs> All right. Let's move on. The, po the point I'm trying to make here is that the people who are leading the environment and are responsible for it are trained in a very, very different way and have very, very different interests, different languages than those who are trained in business. And we have to work very hard to figure out where to bring them together in the classroom, bring them together in terms of language, because if you're dealing with environmental problems, they have to be together. All right. The management evolving part of the, of the conversation, let me kind of take this from the top. It was really only in 1990, by my own recollection, that business people began to take the environment seriously. And it was a paradigm shift, to use business school cliché. 
in the following sense. Business was no longer the problem for the environment, but business should be the solution to things that we find not to our liking in the environment. And that was a pretty important shift. And you begin to see certain leaders in business saying, we really have to change the way we're doing business. And it started in places like Dow Chemical Company. Dow Chemicals in the Vietnam War, they made Agent Orange, they made napalm, they made a lot of terrible chemicals. And the family, it's a, it's a very interesting company that I got to know when I was at Michigan. The family came as a family to this realization, we have to be more responsible to the people. And so Dow became one of the first businesses to say, let's see what we can do in terms of managing to deal with the environment and our people in a much more straightforward and human way. And they, they deserve an enormous amount of credit because they were criticized. And people didn't know if they were going to make money. And the competitors often said, you're, you're crazy. And it turned out not to be so. And little by little, you find leaders in various companies taking on environment and the society as part of their corporate social responsibility. All right. There's the greening of industry network. I did a little homework, uh, which is the is the one of the first enterprises where some CEOs begin to get together thinking about the environmental aspects of their business. Then you see in the beginning of Bill Clinton's first administration, the President's Council on Sustainable Development, co-chaired by the, the CEO of Dow Chemical and Jonathan Lash, the head of World Resources Institute. And let me tell you, I know them both, it was like sleeping with the enemy. They both said that independently because they had been so much at war. But they both realized that they had to change the way they were both doing business. And they, by the way, they both received an enormous amount of criticism from their natural friends for selling out. That's all changed, thank goodness. And that was the state of affairs in 1991, 1992. Uh, academic journals, and this is important for business schools, began to accept business and environment kinds of articles. That's a good thing in, in terms of adapting and evolving. Corporate environmentalism, I think, begins about 1990. It's as good, good a place as any, and it's improving ever since. Look at the standard business disciplines that I've got here on the chart. Strategy, operations management, and so on. I'm going to give you some examples in each of these fields where the environment is being understood and where business is dealing better with it. First, in strategy. The question, does it pay to be green, is the fundamental question of corporate strategy with respect to the environment. And anyone who's ever had a strategy course, does it pay to do X, Y, or Z? In this case, does it pay to be green? And increasingly, we are finding that the answer is yes. It pays to be green in terms of being more efficient if you're manufacturing. It pays to be green in terms of what your customers, your clientele. It pays to be green so you don't get sued all the time. That's not a positive reason, but it pays to be green not to be sued all the time, and so forth. It's a strategic issue. How do you get a competitive advantage? That's a strategic question, too. And one of the classic, it's become a classic textbook, is Andrew Hoffman's book, Competitive Environmental Strategy. That book is the year 2000. So this is a fairly recent thing. It's a wonderful book. 
taking the whole idea of strategy and saying, let's turn it loose on the environment every which way. And by the way, not everything is a good decision from a green or, or, or a strategic point of view that's green. Some things are, some things aren't, and that's important to know. Operations management, the next general area in sort of traditional business. Uh, right here you see industrial ecology, efforts to dematerialize, highly efficient manufacturing, concepts like life cycle analysis. By the way, the Europeans are way ahead of the, of, of, of the Americans on this score. You think of, of BMW. Every single part of a BMW has been assessed for its recyclability. You take the car and you take it apart and they recycle the parts. It's part of the design of the automobile. The Germans, the Dutch, and many other Europeans have been really on top of this. The Swedes, in terms of the full life cycle analysis of products and manufacturing. The idea of material flow analysis, that's another concept which we're seeing in operations management directly because of environmental concerns. And this is terrific. Uh, organization behavior as a field. This is how people kind of orient themselves to your product, how they operate in groups and so forth. Uh, you find organizational behavior is really very good in trying to understand why people are motivated. And this gets to, to marketing too. These two are pretty closely related. What motivates a person to buy and pay a premium for something that has environmental value? That's the question. So how do you sell somebody on the ecotourism, for example, which is a big deal in places like Brazil. It's big and growing, huge. It's one of the biggest growing industries in the world. How do you convince someone to pay twice or three times for a tourism package what they would pay if it were not ecotourism, if it were just ordinary tourism? How do you do that? Well, it's very tricky, uh, but we're learning. You need some third party to come in and say this is, this is a valuable environmental and it's legitimate, it's true. We're not wrecking the environment. They're not lying to you by calling it something special from an environmental point of view. You then make your own mind up in terms of the behavior. Are you going to purchase this thing at a, at a premium? And we're seeing certification in a whole range of environmental products like timber, like food, like tourism as being an important and growing industry uh, where many NGOs have, have taken a, a very strong position as the third party independent certifiers of something as being having true environmental value and therefore should be, you should be willing as a customer to pay more for it. Uh, all right, accounting. That's as boring a field as you could ever imagine. <laughs> I can say that. Some of my best friends are. It's, it's that line. Well, it turns out that accounting is a terribly important field for the environment. Conventional accounting that everyone in business is taught, understands, knows, has rules. Uh, one of my best accounting friends says, accounting, it's a pack of lies mutually agreed to. That's really important. Everyone knows that it's not a perfect description of what happens in the world, but everyone plays by the same rules, so there is a basis for comparison of self over time, comparison of your activities with your competitors, and whatever. 
there's plenty of room for improvement in conventional accounting. When you talk about the environment, we don't know what things cost. And so there is, in the, in the business world, an enormous amount of effort to price environmental goods and services. Let me put it simply. What's the Amazon worth? What's a tree worth? What's an endangered species worth? Those are accounting questions because we've got to get to the point where we can begin to figure out what the pack of lies mutually agreed to that will include green things, environmental things, what that is. Now, having said that and being somewhat negative, let me say that there are countries that are trying to have green accounts at the national level, Costa Rica being one. Costa Rica gets, gets back to my original comments, space and time. Costa Rica is a tiny place. The country's strategy for the country is environmental in every way, shape, and form. They're selling the environment every which way in, the, in Costa Rica. It's in their interest to have a green national accounting, and they, and they have systems for it. So accounting becomes terribly important in the, in, the, in the press of business, in making business more able to do its work. And so I look at, at research activities in the area of, of environmental accounting, environmental services, beginning to try to pin a number on what is the Amazon worth, what is less of the Amazon worth to Brazil, to the Amazon, to the region, to the world, and so forth. Uh, by the way, not everything, not everything will have a monetary value, and that just is the way the world is. A lot of things have intrinsic values, a lot of things have emotional values, they have symbolic values, so I'm not being uh, a total rational proponent here, not at all. Uh, finance, I've already talked a bit about finance in terms of the discount rates. Uh, finance becomes really important from the point of view of putting pressure on business. Uh, there are organizations now that command large pension funds, like the California Pension Fund, CalPERS, for example, billions of dollars, saying in effect, we will not allow our money to be invested in things that are not responsible from an environmental point of view, from a, from a corporate social responsibility point of view. And lately, the big issue is climate change. Trying to put pressure on businesses and whole sectors by withholding or favoring the investment. This is finance in a, in a very, very serious way. Let me move on. Uh, the idea of corporate social responsibility. Uh, the triple bottom line. Let me repeat it again. It's the profit and loss statement make money. The second triple, the second of the, of, the, of the three things, do no harm or as little harm as possible to the environment while you're making your money. The third is be responsible to your employees, your customers, the people who live where you're doing your work. That's it in a nutshell. And if you kind of understand that, that's corporate social responsibility. I would like to add speaking as a business person, that unless you make money, it's hard to be able to do much about the environment or the people who work for you. So there's a priority here. You've got to be able to make the money that allows you to, not the luxury of, but allows you to be more responsible. There's obvious interaction, but if you are running a losing business, the other two things don't matter. It's the logic of it. And the question is, how do you make money 
without doing damage to the environment or doing as little as possible and being responsible for it. Third parties become very important in the area of corporate social responsibility, and I've already mentioned this, and NGOs and nonprofits, and even organized religion, churches, are beginning to exert a role. In, in the United States, it's been very interesting that evangelical churches whole are coming to the fore saying we are willing to support measures to reduce climate change effects and global warming. This is, this is stunning. I mean, it's maybe not welcome, but it's happening. And so the church is, being, is, is weighing in in this area as a third party. More to the point are third parties like Rainforest Alliance, which is a first mover, that, that is they did this first organization to certify ecotourism. They transformed Chiquita brand, the big banana producer in Costa Rica, by coming in and saying, you guys are not doing very, a very good job for the environment and you're, you're doing a terrible job for the people that work for you. Uh, in this audience, I'm sure many of you know what banana plantations are all about or you've seen one. Why don't we try to do this in accord with corporate social responsibility and the triple bottom line and see if we can't, one, not screw up the environment and treat your people, but also make more money. And so Rainforest Alliance actually has developed a reputation working with commodities like bananas and pineapple and flower producers in the tropics uh, to be the person coming in saying, here's how you clean up your act, and by the way, if you do it, you're probably going to make more money. And there are lots of different ways of determining that. It's, are, is it, does it make sense? Uh, certifying of forest products, another way that third parties are becoming very important and interesting. Is the forest managed in an appropriate way or is it terrible? What's being done with the waste and the residuals coming out of the forest? And again, certified forest, certified trees in the market demand a higher price. And so it makes economic sense. And increasingly, we're beginning to see encouraging words on this front. Climate change in business, I'm going to go quickly here. We're finding networks. There is the series. I didn't write it down here. It's the Investor Network on Climate and Risk. And it's an organization that was created uh, after, in 1990, after the Exxon Valdez tanker spill as part of the damages that the court got from Exxon. I'm, I'm jumping around here a bit, but Exxon Valdez crashed in Alaska, made a big mess. They lost in court. And one of the things that Exxon had to do was to create this nonprofit organization for the so-called CERES principles, which was environmental responsibility for large corporations. CERES is now focusing on climate change. They're focusing on investors in major corporations trying to convince them it's in the corporate interest not to do terrible things that, that increase uh, carbon emissions. Trustees and boards, this is a logical place for a lot of pressure to be put. The insurance industry turns out to be extremely sensitive to the environment. Hurricanes, storms, uh, almost need I say more. The reinsurance business is extremely sensitive. You know, and my comment about having to put dollar values on things that are environmental, the insurance guys are right out in the forefront because if they don't get the estimates right, they're out of business. 
And I can tell you in Florida, I own property in Florida on an island. My insurance has quadrupled in the last two years. The insurance guys have got the numbers right and they figured out the risk and I'm paying for it. And that's good business. I don't like it, but it's good business. And then my comments about the NGOs. I've already gone over that. Now, bridging the gap. What are we doing in the university and other places to take account of everything that I've been talking about for the last hour, 45 minutes? Well, the first thing is joint degrees. My comment about bringing the business people together as we're training them to be leaders with environmental leaders. Best way to do it, I figured in 1984, when I had this, I, this wild idea, and people thought I had lost my mind. I was in the management school at Yale as an associate professor, and I said, you know, it doesn't make any sense for the business guys to be screamed at by the, by the environmentalist, bite, biting them on the leg is the way I described it to my colleagues. They ought to be talking to each other. They, they have more to gain if they get to understand what's going on, one from the other, than not. So Yale became the first place in the country where students could apply to our school of management and our School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. And if they got in, I figured a way that they could get two valuable professional degrees, a Master of Environmental Science and an MBA, in three years, not four. So that was the incentive. And you do it by jiggering electives and sleight of academic hands, like magic. We threw away a year worth of training to give people the two degrees. We've tr we have trained in this program over 200 individuals and I've, I've watched with enormous pleasure their careers. Uh, now, one of the other things that happens when you train environmentalists with business people is that they are taking other classes together and the two schools begin to blend a bit in ways, not entirely, but if you've got an environmentalist in the back of the finance class and you're teaching them that discount rate should be five or six or seven or eight percent, and the, and the environmentalist says, but wait a minute, that means that nothing has got any value in 10 years. Let's talk about the ecosystem or the air or whatever. And by the way, this causes some of my business colleagues, has caused them to really kind of rethink what they're doing. We're using increasing environmental examples in the core curriculum of our management school, which is a good thing. By the same token, over the 25 years we have now in our environment school, the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, Industrial ecology, industrial environmental management. We teach applied economics, lots of it. And environmental students take it and learn from it and are, are stronger because of it, I, I believe. So that's the first thing, joint degrees. MBAs for sustainability. Uh, I have met and have become friends with people at University de los Andes in Bogota, in Colombia. Their former Minister of Environment is on that faculty of the School of Management at Los Andes. They just launched an MBA, a two-year MBA, which is an MBA for the environment, an MBA for sustainability. I think it's the first in Latin America. It's terrific. It doesn't go the full three years of the Yale program because they don't have an environment school at Los Andes. But what they do understand is that the environment is terribly important for their MBAs. And so the examples are environmental. Environmentalists are coming in teaching some of the new courses. And we are helping 
to create cases and, and other materials with them. And we're learning from them as well. Environmental management for business. Skills courses for people who are in the environment programs so that they can run their, their businesses better. The line here is make green organizations better businesses to make them more efficient, to make them more effective in what they're doing. Their skills, their management skills that can be taught. And we're beginning to understand what those skills are for people who are hardcore environmentalists. You know, you don't have to like Greenpeace from a business point of view, but you'd sure like them to be able to do their job without going bankrupt, which they did as an organization about five years ago, for instance. The Nature Conservancy is one of the best-run environmental organizations, and every, it's held up as the, as the icon of good management for an environmental organization. Three years ago, they had a corporate governance scandal involving their board that almost destroyed the organization. So you tell me, corporate governance cuts across nonprofits and NGOs as well as, as, the, as the Enrons of the world, and they're things to be learned. It was almost Enron-like in its, in its devastation to the environmental movement. It was that, that serious. And they quickly were able to, to make amends. And they've really changed the way they do business at the Nature Conservancy, at the top. Mid-career opportunities exist for training people who are doing environmental work. Lots of mid-career opportunities for people in business if they want to learn. And we've barely tapped the potential here. And then finally, the internet. And as I've as I found myself saying last night, the Internet is the answer to almost every question that you can imagine, no matter what the question. So you ask the question, the answer is the Internet. Let me try that again. That was pretty, that was even confusing to me. <laughs> What's the answer to this joining together of business and the environment? The Internet, I think, has a very powerful potential role to play in terms of connecting people, training people, and beginning to close or bridge the gap between, and I do this with my hands, the business mentality and the way they think about and deal with the world and the environmental realities and how environmental people and the rest of us deal with the world. We've got to find the overlap, the consensus. We've got to somehow put the pieces together. And that, my friends, is what I have to say. Gary Brewer is Frederick K. Weyerhaeuser Professor of Resource Policy and Management at the Yale School of Management and Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. This speech was recorded on June 1, 2007.